WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. In national news today, a judge upheld New York City's legal justification for evicting Occupy Wall Street protesters from a park today. Police in riot gear broke up a two-month-old demonstration against economic inequality, according to Reuters. Protesters will be allowed to return, but Justice Michael Stallman found that the city, at least for now, can legally ban protesters from camping in tents and sleeping bags at the park near Wall Street. In Michigan News Today, a study says Michigan is among just a handful of states raising taxes on low-income working families to finance tax cuts for other groups, according to the Associated Press. The Washington-based Center for Budget and Policy Priorities released its report today. It says Michigan, New Jersey, and Wisconsin have scaled back tax credits for low-income workers in recent years while cutting business taxes. On Exposure Tonight, we have a full jam-packed show. Um, We will be uh, joined by the Mid-Michigan Bluegrass uh, uh, group tonight, as well as we'll be talking about the Peace Corps. Um, We'll talk about um, as well as the East Lansing Film Festival. And we will also have um, Seth Bernard call in. He is a um, Michigan folk artist to talk about his newest album. But Right now, earlier this month, the folk rock band Blitz and Trapper performed at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, and I caught up with the band before the show. Here is the story. Blitz and Trapper is a five-member band that formed around a decade ago in Portland, Oregon. They started gaining recognition in 2007 with their album Wild Mountain Nation and began touring across the country. They recorded Wild Mountain Nation in the old Telegraph Building studios in Oregon. The location of the recording session has a special meaning for Blitz and Trapper's frontman, Eric Erling. He had recently gotten out of a stint of homelessness after he dropped out of college and considered the Telegraph Building as a shelter. Uh, yeah, I was like, uh, I was homeless for two years and I lived in the Telegraph Building studios where I recorded. And I, I, I think I did it as a means of simplifying my life. I got rid of everything and... Um, as a means of um, putting restrictions on things and uh, and putting a quality of, of rigorousness to my life because it, it, it was sort of a way of living that was like um, pretty like, kind of harsh, to be honest. Since Wild Mountain Nation, the band has released four more albums. Many argue the band's genre changes from album to album. I think generally we always go from rock and roll to folk, you know, and kind of stuff in between. Blitz and Trapper's 2008 album, Fur, also gained recognition. Billboard described the album as a perfect fall soundtrack rife with woodsy imagery. Erling says it only took him 15 minutes to write the title track. I just sort of sat down and wrote it. No. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, it's a mythical sort of story. It is pretty ancient, going back to, you know, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you know, in the Bible, and, uh, werewolves. I mean, it's just all these stories like that where the man and the creature, you know, sort of that line gets crossed. But I think in a sense that that is sort of, but fur is sort of a love story too, in a way, you know. For 
my flesh had turned to fur, yeah, and my thoughts they surely were turned to instinct and obedience to God. Blitz and Trapper's latest album, American Goldwing, was released in September. It strays away from the indie rock feel of the band's earlier records and enters into the realm of alternative country. For Impact 89FM, I'm Emily Fox. Get your heart tuned to Impact Exposure. I am your host, Emily Fox. The Mid-Michigan Bluegrass uh, Association, it's not association, just Mid-Michigan Bluegrass, I should say, um, they're holding a concert at Waldemar Nature Center this Sunday, and here to perform is the band Grand River Boys. Can you go around and introduce yourselves, everyone? Okay, I'm Jeff Wilmore. I'll be playing the fiddle and mandolin. I'm Ed Love. Leroy Harvey. Jeanette Berzan. All right. So how long has, has this band been around for? Well, the Grand, the Grand River Boys, Boys, we came together uh, out of picking in the park uh, down in Old Town and uh, started off with about four of us about a year and a half ago and uh, started uh, just playing more together. And then there's been some people in and out. And uh, we have three other bandmates who couldn't be here tonight, uh, our bass player, Ikes, and then uh, banjo player, Billy, and uh, our uh, viola player, Elisa. And... Uh, so, so that group has gone, been kind of set for a little while, and uh, now we've got Je- uh, Jeanette in on vocals helping us out, and uh, things are really coming around for us, and we're having a lot of fun. So can you briefly tell me a little bit about what is Pickin' in the Park? Uh, Pickin' in the Park is a uh, grassroots uh, movement uh, that was started down in uh, Georgia. Uh, the uh, chapter here in uh, Lansing was uh, started about five years ago, might be six now. We were the second one in the country, and uh, it's every Tuesday from 6 till 9 p.m. Uh, we're usually outside in the warm weather at uh, the uh, Fish Ladder Park, uh, Bruchard Park there, and in the wintertime we're uh, inside at Sir Pizza on the Grand. So you guys will be performing this Sunday at Waldemar Nature Center as a part of the, the Bluegrass and Folk Jam that, that happens uh, the third Sunday of every month, is yeah. that correct? And from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., um, in in a nice barn at Waldemar Nature Center. Um, how has turnout been? Because since this is kind of a monthly event, how has turnout been so far? It's been getting better all the time. I mean, uh, it's been, this has been a couple of years of uh, this going on. Uh, it's been a, a couple of locations around the capital area. But uh, this year, the last one, uh, they had a pretty good turnout. And this is the <laughs> second one of the season, so we'll see how it goes from there. With the Grand River Boys come playing, I'm sure that there will be a lot of people coming to to hear the music. <laughs> it's also an awesome uh, bluegrass band, Lonesome County. It's coming in from the uh, eastern side of the state, and uh, they're definitely going to rock your socks off if you come down. 
All right. Without further ado, would you be willing to perform for us? Sure. Uh, I'd like to do a, a little song for you here in G. Ready? Bye. 
are tuned to Impact 89FM. In the studio is the Grand River Boys. They will be performing as part of Mid-Michigan Bluegrass this weekend at Waldemar Nature Center as part of the Bluegrass Folk Jam. It will happen this Sunday again at Waldemar Nature Center from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Lady and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. All right, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Since 1960, the Peace Corps has served 136 countries by responding to their requests for help and empowering people to take charge of their own future. To talk about the organization is Shelley White from the MSU Peace Corps Recruiting Office here at Michigan State University. Welcome to the show, Shelley. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you were once a Peace Corps volunteer, and now you're a recruiter at MSU. Why did you decide to join Peace Corps? Um, I guess I can say it might have been somewhat a selfish reason. Um, I just was looking for something new, somewhere to go, something to do, um, kind of get out of my little bubble. Um, so that's what I did. And what was your experience like? Where'd you go? Um, I went to Senegal, West Africa, um, and I was an agroforestry volunteer there. So I helped farmers plant trees. Um, but I mean, there's obviously a lot more tied into that too. The whole cultural exchange that they try to sell as a, you know, as a motivation for going and stuff like that. Definitely, it it has a place in it, too. So Peace Corps is a two-year commitment, correct? It is, yeah. So I, I once uh, studied abroad in Africa, and I met a mm-hmm. lot of Peace Corps volunteers while I was in Mali. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking about, you know, everyone thinks, wow, two years is a pretty big commitment to be overseas, you know, living in a community that's completely foreign to you. You're speaking, yeah. you know, many people, in this case, they're speaking Bamanakan, which is the local language that mm-hmm. you can't really learn in school. So it's they're learning it all new. And they say, the reason it's two years is because that first year, it's just you getting acclimated to the culture. And you really don't help the community until that second year when you finally kind of found where your place is. And they say that a lot of people were saying that that first year is so hard mm-hmm. trying to get acclimated to this new community you know you may be living in a mud hut you may be learning this language and just getting thrown in and then they say finally the second year you kind of understand everything and that's when you can start giving back to the community did you find that to be true yeah it's it's really true um and actually i stayed a third year and i would say that even that third year you 
feel even more comfortable and understand even more what's going on and can I felt like I made more of a difference that third year in my brief time in those communities than I did my two years in my original community um, in a different way, obviously. But the time definitely has a lot to do with what you can do there and how effective you are. I see. And what were some of the biggest um, issues or problems that um, that you may have faced during your, your experience or that in general volunteers face? Um, I mean, it might sound cliche, but I think the cultural aspect to it is really a big thing. I mean, the trainers over there try to do their best to get you comfortable and knowing what to expect when you get to your site, but really they have no idea either. Um, They actually live in somewhat a different world than the rural communities that a lot of volunteers are sent to. Um, So just trying to understand how everything works and functions, um, it's it takes a lot to get used to. Were you sent to a rural community? I was. Um, not as rural as some, I guess. I was on a pretty um, accessible road, um, and my community was about 1,000 people. Um, other communities had maybe 200, so they were much more isolated and smaller. Um, but it was definitely definitely rural, yeah. I see. So I, I understand from your experience that um, you, you know, that you're talking about these cultural issues that may be at place. Mm-hmm. And here you are... Um, being from America, going into this, you know, foreign community that was, you know, kind of rural and, and, and isolated. Um, and, and I understand that um, one of the leaders in your community may or may not have felt a little bit threatened by your um, by you being there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, not really in my community, actually. Okay. Um, I know that happened with other volunteers. Um, they can... It becomes part of a power play in the community. Whoever you get in Senegal, anyway, we were set up with a host family. Um, So sometimes that host family is looked upon as being a little favored. um, And that can create some problems with, like, the power power positions within the community. But in my my circumstances, that really wasn't the case. Um, My host family, they were well thought of in the community, and my being there really didn't impact... Um, their overall standing with anybody else. So how are communities found within Peace Corps where, you know, they can be incredibly rural communities in the middle of nowhere, it seems. How does Peace Corps find those communities and communicate with them saying, you know, do you need help and in in getting people there? Yeah. Well, one of the big things to know is that these communities actually request a volunteer. So a lot of times that happens with their evil they'll meet another Peace Corps volunteer and become interested in why they're there and what they're doing and think, hey, we could really benefit from that in our community. Or it might be just um, a community leader knows about Peace Corps and kind of approaches the other community members and says, hey, what do you think about this? We really need someone to come and show us how to add trees into our landscape. And that's that's really how it's worked. It comes kind of from from within. I see. So how does Peace Corps affect most volunteers' career path once they leave um, being a volunteer? Um, some volunteers it doesn't really affect very much. Um, it was just an experience. But others, I would say most, it definitely plays a role. I mean, for instance, I was an English major before I went, and now I'm studying community food and agriculture with an interest in community food security. So Peace Corps and working with agroforestry and community food security there definitely influenced me. I have other friends who've kind of done the same thing, started out with something completely different, um, and then Peace Corps just shows them kind of something else that they can be passionate about, and they just run with it. 
So what kind of qualities do you think are needed in, in someone that may be considering um, joining the Peace Corps? Well, as a recruiter, I would have to say flexibility um, and a lot of personal motivation and ability to work in situations where you don't have a lot of instruction. Um, I mean, Peace Corps is there to give you training, but a lot of it comes down to what you want to learn and what you want to get out of it. And if you work really hard, then you're going to get a lot out of it. But if you just go there thinking it's going to be vacation and just a fun time, you probably have fun, but it's not it's not going to be the life-changing experience that it can be. Um, so flexibility and just knowing how to kind of roll with the punches. Things aren't going to go the way you expect them to go, um, especially not if you don't understand the culture. Um, that has a lot to do with it, too. And what were the biggest cultural um, issues or, I guess, differences, I guess, the cultural shock or the biggest things um, that, that you faced when you were there? Um, so things are a little bit slower in Senegal. Um, so it and I know community development in general is that way as well. Things move very slowly, but they move even slower over there. It's a different pace of life. Um, so it really took a lot getting used to just kind of sitting back and letting things flow naturally as they would in the community instead of trying to force it. Um, and it's also frustrating because, like you said, we're only there for two years. And that first year, we're just kind of trying to figure everything out. And that second year, we're like, we got to get this done. And then it's gone. It's done. So um, we feel a lot of pressure in that and just having to accept the fact that two years really isn't going to make that huge of a difference, but it might make just a little one that people will know and thank you for, for time to come. So, so finally, how do people get placed um, to, a, to a certain country or community? Um, so in, from the recruitment end, what happens is Peace Corps looks over the applicants, um, the application and the resume, and the sets of skills and experiences that they have, and tries to match them with an assignment area. And there's the six main assignment areas. Um, and then after that, once they've kind of decided, okay, this person is best for agroforestry, for example, then they go to the countries, the host countries, and ask, how many volunteers do you need and of what sector? And so it's a collaboration between both the United States and also the host countries um, to kind of figure out who's needed where in what programs. I see. So. Well, in the studio is Shelly White. She's with the MSU Peace Corps Recruiting Office. Now, Shelly, where can people go for more information about Peace Corps or, you know, MSU um, Peace mm -hmm. Corps Recruiting Office? Um, general Peace Corps, there's the Peace Corps website, pretty easy to find. Um, we also have a website for um, the MSU recruiting page, but you can just stop by our office, too. We're at 202 International Center. Well, Shelly White, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk about Peace Corps here on Impact 89FM. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student, is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime.
now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. This month is Native American Heritage Month. To talk about Native Americans in today's society is Matthew Fletcher. He is director of MSU's College of Law's Indigenous Law and Policy Center. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So first off, can you talk a little bit about MSU's College of Law's Indigenous Law and Policy Center? Sure. Well, we started about seven or eight years ago, and our goal is to um, offer students the opportunity to do work with um, Indian tribes in Michigan and elsewhere and tribal organizations. And um, what I, since I've been on, uh, along with my wife, went on a single, since we've been on the faculty, what we've really been interested in is being able to uh, prepare students who are interested in Indian law to um, actually begin the practice of Indian law once they graduate. We want to give them the skills and the experience necessary to to be able to hit the road as soon uh, hit the hit the road running as soon as they graduate. And uh, I remember when I went to law school and graduated in, in 1997 uh, and started working for an Indian tribe in Arizona, and that, you know, just clueless, just clueless. And uh, I don't want my students to have to go through that. Do you think that specialty in indigenous law is that unique to a lot of law schools? Well, I'd say there there are probably ten to fifteen law schools that uh, have a, a serious specialization in it. Uh, probably another twenty twenty five schools have, you know, multiple classes or people that are experienced and and have expertise in in the field. So it, it is. It is pretty. It is unusual. And east of the Mississippi River, we are one of three law schools that has a program like this. Wow. So, now, is is there a lot of differences studying Indigenous law versus any other type of law? Well, yes and no. Um, you know, the, the the thing about Indian law is that uh, you take all of the the regular areas of law, sort of the general law, and you tweak it just a little bit. And um, so, for example, if you're practicing uh, doing a case or a trial in tribal court with one of the tribes here in Michigan or elsewhere, uh, the rules of civil procedure are probably much more informal than they are in federal and state court. Uh, you know, and the, the, the kinds of law that you would apply are pretty similar for the most part, but there are differences. They are, they are different governments after all, and so they can do different things. So there, there is some difference, and there, since there's such a long history of American Indian tribes, and that history does impact the way that uh, you know these cases are are adjudicated, it, it it tends to overwhelm people at the beginning, thinking that this is so dramatically different than um, any kind of thing else that, that we're doing, and you have to have a specialty, and you have to have all this experience, and we try to tell our students that's not really the case. So long as you have a good grasp on, on and keep your good head and shoulders, and it's pretty easy to catch up. So, do you mostly work on cases in Michigan? Well, I I've worked all around the country for various tribes. Right now, I sit on uh, appellate courts for two tribes in Michigan. So we uh, sort of in a, a policy making position there with those tribal courts. And in terms of well, we don't have any appeals, but I do. Um, work for tribes uh, and their appellate courts in Alabama, California, Washington State as well. So I'm kind of all over the place. So what would you say are issues that in, um, that Native Americans face here in the U.S. versus indigenous populations in other parts of the world? Well, uh, I, I always like to tell the story of a friend of mine who is a, a law professor who does indigenous law in, in Australia 
And every time we get to talking, eventually we turn around and she just shakes her head and says, you Americans and your property. <laughs> and, you know, for for Americans, you know, the Constitution is written and, you know, you talk – if you get in, into uh, you know political discussion long enough, it's going to come down to somebody's property rights. And that's very unusual compared to the rest of the world where – Human rights are actually more at stake, and human rights uh, – there's a lot of overlap between the two, but the way we ap- approach a, a property rights case versus a human rights case is dramatically different. And so for Indian tribes in the United States, it's it's kind of hard. And this this is true, I think, also for Canada, but it's much harder because, uh, you know – there's sort of a zero-sum game when it comes to property. You know, somebody has the property and the tribes, for example, are making claims to it. Um, the, the easy answer is no. And outside of the United States and North America in generally, it's it's a much dip, more different analysis. You know, in, indigenous groups don't necessarily demand other people's property in that context. And, and even if they did, uh, they'd probably be more like it, more likely to to. Um, you know, have have a favorable outcome. Property rights are much more stark here than they are elsewhere. So I'm curious, why did you decide to get involved with indigenous law? Well, I'm, I'm an American Indian. I grew up here in Michigan. I'm a member of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians, uh, which is up in Lillinois County in the, the Grand Traverse Bay area. And uh, since I was a little kid, I've always been told that there are, there's a lot of work in the field and it's good work. Uh, it's the kind of work that you can, you know, when you come home and put, hang your hat up on the on the wall, and, on the, uh, you feel good about yourself. And, you know, it's it's a nice way to, to be able to make a good living and uh, and do the kind of work that, that is important. I've been able to, to, you know, work on trials that have impacted, you know, the economic security of my own tribe and the treaty rights of my own tribe and other tribes. Uh, I've worked on environmental cases. I've worked on all sorts of social justice issues. And it's just a really fulfilling experience. So I I was hoping that I would have an experience like that when I was thinking about a career, and I think it's uh, been going pretty well so far. So what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions regarding Native Americans? Well, you know, it's funny. I was just on the radio uh, for a conference that I'm going to at Syracuse University Law School, and their issues there relate to land claims, and they've been, uh, just in the last few years, the federal judiciary, which has become much more conservative in the last 10 or 15 years, has just decided that they've had enough and they've struck them all down. And there are groups in New York State and and, and also – and there used to be more so in the Great Lakes area, but I think there, there may still be some. But they focus a lot on uh, this phrase, equal rights for all Americans, and they – frequently equate the kind of claims that Indians and Indian tribes make to some sort of special rights that only are available to American Indians. And that's, I think, a big misconception. Indian tribes and Indian people have gone through, you know, they've they've been, there are cases that, that are still, that have never been overruled. There are acts of Congress that have never been repealed that basically say American Indians don't have the right to own property. Remember I talked about property before? Well, that's in many ways the foundation of federal Indian law is the the notion that Indian people, because they weren't civilized or, uh, well, they weren't white and they weren't white males, they couldn't own property. And so those laws are still into play. And so to say that Indian tribes and Indian people get special rights is uh, sort of uh, putting blinders on. So speaking of property, I'm curious, um, we have reservations here in the U.S., as everyone knows, um, and and those reservations are, are sovereign nations, Correct, in which they have their own government, um, and then they don't 
it's kind of, you know, their, their own government outside of how everything else functions in the U.S. So what would you say, um, why are reservations still relevant and still needed in the U.S. today? Well, you know, that goes to the history. Um, reservations are, were largely uh, the, the, remain, the last remainder of, of chunks of land that Indian people once claimed as their own territorial sovereign area. So the Michigan tribes, for example, my tribe, um, laid claim to uh, or at least, you know, used uh, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, at least until 1836, you know, about a third of the state of Michigan. They could they could have some sort of property rights claim to. And they gave that up in exchange for 20,000-acre reservation, and that is fairly typical. So the reservation itself is a place for which Indian people um, can remain. And a good friend of mine who teaches at Colorado Law School uh, coined the phrase measured separatism to describe treaty rights and, and reservation policy. And it really has to do with preserving culture as well as um, economic and political security. You know, Indian tribes. I always tell my students they uh, they're they're timeless entities. They they predate the United States. They predate everything. They were, you know, as people often say, they were here first. And so, um, yeah, the Constitution doesn't restrict what tribal governments do. But as a practical matter, um, these reservations are all that is left of of tribal sovereignty. And so, they have the right to do things like um, decide rules of probate and inheritance and tax rules and divorce rules. And they do things in a way that is frequently very different. And probably one of the, the classic examples is uh, criminal law, where in, in, in your typical federal and state court, you, you know, a slap on the wrist means you go to jail for six months. Uh, and, and jails aren't very friendly places to be. You know, Indian tribes in, for the past 25 years with the rise of tribal courts have been forefront and the leader in America and leading uh, in ways for people to, for judges and, and for criminal defendants to avoid, you know, packing people into prisons. And ironically, places like the state of Texas are starting to empty their jails as a result of the successes that uh, Indian tribes in some ways, I mean, I don't think they would ever admit to this, but Indian tribes were at the forefront of creating things like drug courts so that first time nonviolent drug offenders wouldn't have to spend the rest of their lives in jail. Well, in the studio is Matthew Fletcher. He is the director of MSU's College of Law's Indigenous Law and Policy Center, and he is here to talk about Native issues as it relates to Native American Heritage Month, which is in November. So, Matthew Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, Jamie Gwetch, thank you very much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. We've just received word of an invasion. Speak quickly, maggot. Is it those Canadians again? I don't know, sir. We just heard that Monday at 8 p.m. the impact will be invaded. You stupid ninny. That's the Asian invasion. It's the poppiest, catchiest, and all-around toe-tappingest music out of the Korea, Japan, and China. But, sir, I'm no good with Asian dialects. Shut up and listen to the music, private. That catchy beat knows no language barrier. Now move out, everyone. Sir, yes, sir. The Asian invasion. Monday nights from 8 till 10. on The impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Thursday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. Listen to the Hours of Power, the scariest and only metal show in the mid-Michigan area. Only on Impact Primetime. Now back to Impact Exposure. 
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. This week is the final week for the 14th annual East Lansing Film Festival. To talk about the festival is the director of the festival, Susan Woods. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So first off, can you, um, what have been the highlights so far of the East Lansing Film Festival? Well, opening night was gorgeous. It was a, uh, um, a foreign film called In a Better World, and we had a great crowd. And then over the weekend, it was just amazing. It, uh, we had, especially Sunday, which is our Lake Michigan film competition, we had uh, the best crowd ever. Can you talk a little bit about the Lake Michigan Film Competition? Well, the Lake Michigan Film Competition evolved from uh, Michigan's own. We used to have a competition just for films made in Michigan. Then we expanded it to include all the states that bordered uh, Lake Michigan. And so that includes Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. And uh, people submit the films. We got about 150 films submitted. And from that, a film selection selects the ones that they feel should be in competition. And then we give out a cash award for the best film in in many categories. So I understand that this year features more locally made films than ever before? Ever before. And and why is that? Um, Well, what happened was that the films that were submitted and accepted into the film festival were of longer length than we've ever had. I mean, they were 30 minutes, 28 minutes, things like that. So we had all these other films that by chance were all local films um, that we felt should be seen but could not be within the competition. So we expanded uh, and we had um, eight different times where the films were shown and they included MSU student films. So how do you think that the East Lansing Film Festival compares to other film festivals in the state? By it. It's the best. No. <laughs> um, you have, the oldest film festival in Michigan is the Ann Arbor, Michigan, is the Ann Arbor Film Festival, but they uh, spotlight experimental type of films. So um, – the the only other film festivals that I think are comparable to ours is the Traverse City Film Festival started by Michael Moore and the Waterfront Film Festival in Saugatuck, which was inspired and I helped start that one also. But um, for a film festival, we're the largest and the oldest except for Ann Arbor. Wow. So I understand the East Lansing, I was reading your guys' website, and it says the East Lansing Film Festival claim is the largest and most diverse film festival in Michigan to screen independent and foreign feature documentaries, short, and student films from around the world. Yes. Wow. That's impressive. It is. <laughs> so have you been able to catch any of the films? Oh, of course. Which ones have been your favorite? Oh, you know, I can't. You, that, that's like <laughs> saying you have a favorite child. Um there's a film tonight that is going to be playing at Celebration Cinema, and it's called Encendies, and um, I'm going to go see it, but everybody was really floored by it, and that was one of the favorites. Opening Night in a Better World was a favorite, and uh, The Human Experience was a very moving film. We had the two, two of the subject matters come, and they could talk about it afterwards. But we have a film coming up... Um, uh, where the Soldiers Come From, and that is and the director, Heather Courtney, is here, and that's going to be tomorrow night at the East Lansing Hanna Community Center, and that is a really moving film. 
Well, in the studio is uh, Susan Woods. She's um, with the East Lansing Film Festival. Um, and we only have a few more days left of this film festival. For more information, you can go to ELFF.com. Susan Woods, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You're so welcome. Thank you. Now back to Impact Exposure. tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. Seth and May Bernard are leaders in Michigan's contemporary folk scene. They founded the Earthwork Music Collective and host a yearly music festival. And they just released a new album called New Flower. To talk about the album is Seth Bernard here on the phone. Welcome to the show, Seth. Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So can you tell me a little bit about your new album, New Flower? Yeah, uh, we got to be a part of this awesome expedition called the Run Across Ethiopia. So we spent most of January in Ethiopia, and we wrote all of the music there. Uh, we got to meet with Ethiopian musicians and play in schools, and we played for all of these runners who ran this ultra, ultra, ultra marathon across southern Ethiopia to raise money to build schools. And we recorded the album when we got home and uh, just released it, and half the money from the album goes back to Ethiopia to uh, build schools and help people with education. So why did you decide to go to Ethiopia? One of our best friends came up with the idea, and he's the founder of On the Ground, the nonprofit that sponsored the trip. And On the Ground works all over the world uh, directly with communities to work on health care and education and water infrastructure. And uh, Chris Treeter also, he started Higher Grounds Trading Company, uh, Michigan's first organic fair trade coffee company. And so um, he invited us to come along and, and convinced us that it was important to have a cultural exchange component to the trip to, to, you know, raise money to help people out in Ethiopia, but also to bring some of our culture there and share it and to be influenced by their culture and bring it back here. So are you still on tour kind of promoting the album right now? Uh, we just finished the, the first big push. Um, we did 10 dates in 16 days with our five-piece band and uh, some radio and some TV and stuff. Uh, but we're continuing to push it out there, and we're going to do some more stuff in schools and libraries and things like that. There's also a, a film that goes with it, and we've done a few sneak previews of When We Run, the documentary. Um, we did the soundtrack for it. So there were these runners and journalists and also filmmakers that went on the trip to document the whole thing. So we're going to continue to play the music, and, and then the film is going to officially be released in the new year. And where can people go to see that film once it's released? Uh, the, the preview for the film is on YouTube right now, um, but once the film is released, we'll be doing like a full publicity tour with it. And um, at, at, the, at the moment, you can go to onthegroundglobal.org to learn more about the trip and about the organization itself. So what would you say was the most impactful thing that you experienced while in Ethiopia, whether that be a moment or, you know, a, a change in thought? Mm, that's a good question. It, the whole experience was very impactful, and um, I'm still, it's still soaking in in my soul um, and my heart, and, and, you know, my wife May, too. Both of us are still sort of coming to understand what we went through there. I guess if I could think of a moment, it would be when we went to this community, Hase Gola, 
um, in the coffee growing region, the Sadamo region, which is the birthplace of coffee. And this was a community of coffee growers that um, Chris Treeter has worked with for a lot of years, and um, this was the first community to benefit from the effort of on the ground to build schools. So we went there thinking that we would see some people. We knew that we would be received, and, and they were cooking us lunch, and there was going to be a celebration. But there were like 2,000 people there, and everyone surrounded us when we arrived. It was up in this hill in the sun, and uh, everyone was singing and dancing and clapping, and everybody it was just, it was so emotional and, and so human. Uh, we all cried, and people gave speeches, and we got to play music, and um, the people, they really felt respected and honored, and um, the speeches that were given and, and translated were just so profound and human and also just very simple, you know, showing respect and um, and being compassionate um, to, to the people that actually have a big impact on our daily lives. The trading of goods and services is really a global thing, and so our community is global in this day and age. And um, the, uh, the the spirit of the Ethiopian people is so powerful. It's a very mature, intelligent culture, very ancient culture. The uh, music and art is 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 amazing and vivid, and um, and uh, the people. Even the ones that have to face this, the strongest um, adversity and, and sickness and poverty um, treated us with unconditional respect and, and incredible generosity. So I think that the standard of humanity and of conduct there is the main thing that has stayed with me as I try to remind myself that, you know, kindness is above all, you know, where it's at as far as being human goes. So after you came back from Ethiopia, you rented a house on Old Mission Peninsula to record this album. Why did you decide to go to Old Mission Peninsula versus, you know, staying kind of at your home base? That's a good question, too. Uh, a couple of our mentors live up there. They, they run the Neotawanta Research and Education Center, which is just a wonderful uh, social justice and peace and activist uh, organization. And they've been mentors to a lot of people in the northwest lower Michigan community. Um, Bob Russell and Sally Van Vleck are their names. And uh, uh, as we were visioning and putting intention into the trip, we met with them a couple times um, to sort of focus our intention for the pilgrimage. And they uh, made this house available to us for five days. Um, so we wanted to have a place that was away from our homes, and it was also within sort of the realm of Neotuanta, which is a sacred place for us. So you, you guys were able to create a whole album within five days? Yeah, we wrote the album uh, when we were in Ethiopia in 12 days, and then we went um, into our home studios here and we did demos of the songs. Then when we went up to Neotuanta to record, we had three days of rehearsal and two days of tracking. But then after that, we did more overdubs, and we had some great Michigan artists like Joel Mabus, and Peter Madcat Ruth and Lansing's own Ethiopian-born uh, Tomuskin, hmm. who plays at Altus every month. He played Ethiopian instruments on the record and uh, was our very special guest at a bunch of the release shows. Wonderful guy. He even did some Ethiopian dancing for us, which was totally a highlight of the shows. Um, so, yeah, we gathered our friends and gathered the sounds together. Uh, but the, the basic tracking took a couple days, and... Um, 
and we wanted to make it fresh and really push for it because these runners had run a marathon a day for 12 days. So uh, we wanted to honor them and their effort and put, put out a really strong effort ourselves. Nice. Well, for for our listeners that may not be so familiar with with what we call Seth and May, um, so you and May recently got married this past summer, correct? That's right. And how long have you been playing together? We've been playing together for seven and a half years now. Wow. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, so um, I, for our listeners out there, I'm talking with... Um, uh, Seth Bernard, he he and uh, May, which they call each other, Seth and May, they're leaders of Michigan's contemporary folk scene, and they founded the Earthwork Music Collective and host a yearly music festival, and they just released a new album called New Flower, and we're just about to play the title track. Before we play that, Seth, can you tell us a little bit about this, this song, New Flower? Yeah, that was the first song that May wrote when we got to Ethiopia. We went to this mission for the dying and destitute, that's what it was called, uh, in Addis Ababa on Ethiopia's Christmas and played music for for the kids in the orphanage and for the men in the men's ward and the women there. And uh, May went back to the hotel and wrote this song right away. And I think it, it captures a lot of the inspiration that we received from those people and also what we hope to bring back to the U.S. as that was sort of our, our mission. Well, here on Impact 89FM is the song New Flower by Seth and May. It's not blind, the hope that's in your eyes Through your eyes I see too And there is nothing at stake That can stand up to your grace To the grace so awaken you So take this love and go in peace Teach this joy to all you need let the sorrow stand Be reminder Come on and flower Take the seed And grow beauty from the green And every day Bear witness to its splendor And it's not weak The softness that you speak In your peace Lies the courage that I crave like the scarecrow who came to find a little piece of mine, this lion is longing to be brave. So take this love and go in peace, teach this joy to all you need, and let the sorrow stand in the mind. Exposure. You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and now for the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week features David James. He's the winner of the 2010 Next Generation Indie Book Award for Poetry, and he's also the author of She Dances Like Mussolini, as well as I Dance Back. He'll be reading as part of the Old Town Poetry Series tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. at Creole Gallery. Welcome to the show, David James. Thank you very much. So can you talk about uh, your newest book out, and that's called She Dances Like Mussolini. Yes, it was, it was a collection that took 25 years 
to publish from my first book. So it should be pretty good. <laughs> but it took a long time. My first book was published in 1984. So this one, 25 years later, uh, I just decided to put all of my crazy, funny, bizarre, surreal poems into one book. So uh, that's how it kind of came to be. There's nothing serious or, you know, uh, pastoral or lyrical about this book. It's all um, just kind of general craziness. And where did you get the title, She Dances Like Mussolini, from? It's actually the title of a book, I mean, a title of a poem in the book, and uh, which I'll read tonight. But I got it from a friend of mine, Mike Mink, who uh, wrote me a, a letter when I, a long time ago when I was in college. And uh, this is how he described his blind date. She dances like Mussolini. And it was such a beautiful line, I just had to take it. Well, without further ado, would you be willing to read an excerpt from your book, She Dances Like Mussolini? Sure, sure. Um, I'll read uh, a prose poem. This book is full of poems and prose poems. And for those who don't know, prose poems are just short, really short, short uh, prose pieces. So they're more like paragraphs or stories. Um, and this is called A Burning Bush of Sorts. God spoke to me while I sat alone on the park bench. It was a sunny day, early spring. I could see buds on the trees. So what do you think, he said. About what? All this life busting out around you. I didn't expect God to say busting out. I expected manifesting or conjuring. It's wonderful, I said. Nice work. Do you think there are too many birds? I could cut back on a few species. No, not at all. It's the return of the birds that make me think of spring. For me, the return of the robin was the beginning of spring. My wife says the first robin around our house is her grandmother checking in on us. She used to love seeing the first robin. Then the idea struck me. Here's a question for you, God. Is that first robin we see every year our grandma Ketterer? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to check the inventory, and that takes quite a while up here. But in theory, I said, do the dead come back to visit us as animals or as living things in general? It's possible, he said. With me, anything is possible, you know. I took that as a yes, thanked him, and ran home to tell my wife the good news. And that is from your, first, or your most recent book, She Dances Like Mussolini. Yes, it is. And so I... I, I what's interesting about that poem to me is my wife considers it a love poem. Hmm. And I, I did not write it that way, and I never consider it that way. But she says, well, no, it means that you listen to what I say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure. Whatever you say. Uh, so I understand that you're also a playwright as well as a poet. Yes. Um, about 10 years ago, I took up playwriting partly because... Uh, well, for several reasons. I was teaching creative writing, and we were teaching uh, writing one-act plays, so I, I always think I should be able to write what I'm teaching. And then, two, as a poet, you know, you, you're the only one who ever reads your book or reads your poems out loud, and generally you don't have an audience. So I wanted to uh, see if I could write a play where I would actually have other people saying my words, and people would go 
to it <laughs> and, and be in the audience for it. So I've been really lucky. I mean, I've, I've had six uh, plays, one-act plays produced uh, off-Broadway in New York City and a couple in Nantucket and Wisconsin and San Diego and probably probably 10 or 12 in Michigan. So it's been real uh, productive for me. And, and what do you enjoy more, writing poetry or, or writing plays? Oh, poetry for sure. I've been writing poetry for over 30, 35 years or so. So that's still my, if, if you ask me what I am, I'm, I'm still a poet, you know, and I just, I dabble in playwriting and I dabble in writing essays and fiction. And, but I'm, whenever I sit down and I have time to write, it's almost always a poem that comes out. I kind of have to force myself with an idea for a play. So I understand that you're also a teacher at Oakland University. Um, what do you teach there? Well, I, I'm the, right now I'm the department chair of English at the uh, Orchard Ridge campus. But I teach composition, um, kind of we all do, composition one and two. But I also get to teach creative writing and uh, introduction to playwriting and screenwriting. So uh, it, that that keeps me motivated and inspired as well. Reading, you know, students' work and and uh, you know, being challenged by by them as well. So. so, without further ado, would you be willing to take us out with a poem? Yes, I'll take you out with the the title poem. She dances like Mussolini, which was written for Mar Michael Mink, a good friend of mine in high school, and this was how he described going on a blind date. She dances like Mussolini. Short and stout, her hair unable to fly loose from her head, my blind date marches across the dance floor, arms jerking, her whole body banging into others. With each salute, impact, she salutes and shouts up into the music. This is the last time, I tell myself, the last time. But in minutes, she has everyone in the bar marching in rows, everyone ordering Chianti. Bodies barge and ram. People scream and kick their legs out in time to the beat. I can't understand a word of the shouting, the guttural grunting phrases. My date winks at me across the length of the floor and then starts this way, dancing like Mussolini. And God knows I'm sick. I dance back. And that was David James. He's a winner of the 2010 Next Generation Indie Book Award for Poetry. He's also the author of She Dances Like Mussolini as well as I Dance Back. He'll be reading as part of the Old Town Poetry Series tomorrow at 7.30 p.m. at Creole Gallery. David James, thanks so much for coming on for the Michigan Storytelling segment. Well, thank you very much. Broadcasting from the campus. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.